You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. We're going through the book of Ephesians, and we're going to be finishing it in just a few weeks. And uh, we're in chapter 6. If you have a Bible and you want to open it or turn it on, you can go to Ephesians chapter 6 to follow along. And we're going to be covering verses 5 through 9 today. And the passage um, has to do with, um, with the way that, that slaves and masters interact um, on, the, on the job with one another. And um, it, can, it can be one of those passages that feels really irrelevant um, for those of us uh, in a modern time. Um, and, and I want to spend some time even giving background of slavery, but I think a, a deep application of the principles that the Bible gives us here um, is actually going to help us in, in the way that we go into our jobs and workplaces. Um, even if you're, if you're not employed right now, if you don't have a, a job, if you don't have income, um, you have been given responsibility. Um, God has designed us to work, um, and, and so we have jobs, we have responsibilities, we have homes, we have children, we have parents to care for in some cases, uh, we have people to disciple, we have ministry to do, and so God has given us godly responsibility for our good. Our work that we do is actually a, a grace in your life, okay? I promise it, it, it is, even though it doesn't always feel that way, okay? So we're going to deal with what work is and why we should work. And so just to kind of orient your mind around that, I want you to think of what you wanted to be when you grew up. Um, I remember uh, my mom saying that I always used to say I wanted to be a preacher and a writer. Um, so I did okay with that. Um, I've only had two jobs my entire life. I worked for my dad in high school and then through college and then while I was in seminary as well at West Virginia Tractor Company. And then I quit that job and started New Heights Church. And so my resume is pretty short. I asked on Facebook what your worst jobs were. Um, some of the responses were interesting. Um, some of y'all have had some crazy jobs. And, um, and some of you guys have really been through it with the things that you've done uh, to make ends meet and pay the bills. And as you think about uh, your work and, and what you do for a living, um, I think sometimes it's easy for us to just look at our employment as just a necessary evil uh, that exists to pay our bills. Right? It's easy for us to just be like, well, this is something I have to do. Um, that means I don't have to find any fulfillment or enjoyment or, or bring any glory to God in it. It's, it we, we, we have a tendency to almost look at our employment as, as this separate compartment of our lives that's separated from who God has created us to be. And so I want to try to change your mind on that today. Um, and I want you to see that God has a greater plan through the work that you do. That God has actually sovereignly orchestrated um, the job that you have or the responsibilities that you have, even if you don't have a job. The, the work that you do, God has sovereignly orchestrated it around your life so that he could be glorified through it. Okay, So that's, that's what we're going to try to attempt to uh, show today. So let's read the passage, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. It says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whoever, uh, or I'm sorry, who, whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. 
Um, as we look at this passage, I want to show you three things, what godly submission looks like or what it should look like um, in regard to work, um, and specifically dealing with the issue of slavery and, and why that's in the Bible. I want to show you that we all have godly responsibility and then call you to godly leadership. Even if you don't view yourself as a leader, I want to make this applicable to you. Okay. So the first, godly submission. To put this in its context, it's important that we know how Paul is writing this. Remember, Paul is in prison. He's writing to the the Christians in the ancient city of Ephesus, and he's, he's addressing a, a city that existed in a time of predominant and heavy slavery. Okay, so that's why it's there. But in context, he's, he's giving uh, several applications out of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, which says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so he says that all Christians are called to submit in different areas of their life, to have leaders, to have submissive moments. And, and so he gives several examples of that. So a couple weeks ago, we talked about marriage and what uh, leadership and submission looks like in marriage. We talked about parenting and how we're supposed to raise our kids in the admission of the Lord last week. And uh, today, we get to slavery. Like, what's going on here? The Greek word is doulos in verse 5, chapter 6, verse 5. Translated in the English Standard Version as bondservant, uh, it could very accurately be translated as slave. That's what it means. That's uh, what Paul is referring to is a slave. Now, I think the reason some translators say bondservants is because when particularly when Americans think of slavery, we think of American slavery. We think of the Civil War, the Emancipation Proclamation. And to be, to be fair, the, the Roman Empire had very immoral slavery, but it was not the same as American slavery. American slavery, one of the big differences was American slavery was primarily racial. Um, it was based on someone's ethnicity or skin color, whereas Roman slavery was not that case. Um, American slavery was also never... Um, was never optional. It wasn't something that people voluntarily entered into. In the Roman Empire, slavery was an option. Um, this bond service was something that, that people could actually sell themselves into um, if they found themselves in debt or in circumstances where they needed to make ends meet or couldn't feed themselves or care for themselves. They could um, sell themselves into bond service. American slavery was also always permanent, which was very different from Roman slavery. Roman slavery... Um, was uh, uh, it was an option for some, although many people were born into it, but it was never indefinite. Um, slaves always, under Roman law, had the option to uh, free themselves. They could own property. They could have income. Um, they, could, they could rise to even places of authority in the Roman society and culture. Um, and so what Paul does is he writes to a world that has a lot of slaves in it. And he doesn't write um, as, as an abolitionist. Now, this bothers some people. Why didn't Paul just say, slavery should be illegal, let's take it down, let's start a petition in the Roman world? Instead, what Paul does is he calls them to, uh, to godly and gospel principles. Um, whether they're slaves or masters, he calls them to principles that eradicate slavery. Um, and he's calling them to the rest of Scripture as well, things like the golden rule, treat others as you would want them to be treated, just the kindness of the gospel. He also, in another place, in 1 Timothy 1, 
verse 10, condemns slavery outright um, in, in a, a word that basically means human trafficker or kidnapper. He condemns the practice of taking someone against their will and forcing them into a, a labor position. Um, so he condemns, condemns enslavers along with um, homosexuality, perjurers, um, other sins. He makes a list of sins, and he includes that in there. And so I don't want you to think that Paul is approving of slavery. So I want to set that precedent. That's not what's happening. Instead, what Paul is doing is he's calling people to live out the gospel, and not necessarily in political action, but in the way that they live their lives, that, that they will eradicate what slavery actually was. It's estimated at the time that Paul wrote this that there were about 60 million slaves existing in the Roman Empire. And, and conservative studies say in the city of Ephesus, it was very possible that, that a third or maybe even more of the people in Ephesus were slaves. Can you imagine that? Like a, a big city in the ancient world, and Paul's writing to the Christians there, and a third of the people in the whole city were slaves. And so Paul is, is not coming at it like we're just going to change uh, political uh, parties and, and bring about a reform, but instead we're going to change it um, by changing the way that we live to honor Christ. And so it truly was an entirely different world that Paul's writing to, and slavery was an integral part of the economy and the society at the time. Now, what Paul does is he undermines it by the gospel truth. And, and what's really interesting is, is in my study of slavery in the Roman Empire, um, as you see Christianity begin after the resurrection of Jesus, uh, Christianity increases in the Roman Empire. More and more people come to know Jesus, and, and in, in a correlation, the more Christians there are in the Roman Empire, the less slaves there were in the Roman Empire, so much to the point that slavery was never outlawed by the Romans, but it was eventually completely eradicated. It's really remarkable what the gospel accomplished in the Roman Empire through the influence of, of, of the, the epistles that we have. Another example we have is a guy named Felix who actually imprisoned Paul. Uh, secular records, extra-biblical writing tells us Felix was born as a slave, and, and he was able to, to work and acquire money and eventually pay for his freedom, and he became a, a Roman governor. Um, not on the right side of things, he imprisoned Paul, but this shows that he was, um, he, it was just a different world is what I'm trying to show you. And so this is precisely why Paul instructs Christians in this area. This is where they find themselves when they become Christians, and Paul says, your action and how you react to this will set the tone for the future of the world. And, and so what Paul does is he exhorts slaves to obedience um, and submission, which is radical in and of itself, but probably more radical than that, he exhorts masters to reverence and respect of their slaves. Um, in verse 9, he says, Masters, do the same to them. After he had called, um, called the slaves to be obedient, he says, Masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Do the same to them, has the connotation echoing what he told the slaves to do, which was to treat their masters like Jesus himself. And so he tells slave owners, you need to treat your slaves like Jesus himself. This call, uh, again, completely turned the idea of slavery on its head. And so Paul undermines that whole idea with these principles, and, and all of it is in the godly work of submission. Submission um, brings us into a rightful place with God. It shows us that ultimately we have a supreme master in Jesus Christ, and he's the one that we work for. 
Now, having said all that, given all that context, let's look at godly responsibility. Again, I want you to know that all of us have godly responsibility. Um, In short, all of us work. Whether you get paid for it or not, all of us have work that we have to do. We have things that we're responsible for, and God is glorified in the work of our hands and minds. Um, Even before the fall, Adam worked. God told Adam to work the garden and keep it. And so in this room um, and watching online, we have a vast array of careers represented here. Um, Some of you may be retired. Some of you may be students. Some of you may be doing some sort of volunteer work. Some of you may be doing volunteer ministry. Um, But but I want to show you, um, let let me show you this this graph we have. I'll put it on the screen. Um, the, on this graph, I know it might be a little bit hard to see, there's an orange line that represents time that you spend with your coworkers. And what I want you to see is, is around um, age 25, um, it, it shoots way high above your friendships. And it stays that way until about age 65. And so the reality is when we think of God's mission for us, we tend to think of our friends and our hobbies and the things that we do for like extracurricular activities. But the reality is, is from age 20 to 65, most of our hours are spent with people that we might not want to spend time with, right? Uh, people we just have to spend time with because we work alongside them. And, and, and if, we, if we don't take the gospel to the workplace, we are missing the majority of our lives where we spend an enormous amount of our time. Um, and, and so we have to see that God has placed us where we work for his sovereign purpose. And, and if you would just kind of categorize out your work, your family, your, your romantic partnership, your kids, all these things. And then this line, this, this graph doesn't have this line, but your religious time or time you spent with your church family um, in church or in a small group, it would be, it, I mean, it would be represented by a horizontal line at the very bottom of this graph. The time that you spend with church people is so infinitely small of a fraction compared to the rest of the time you spend. And so when you come here, you're to be getting equipped and charged up to go out and and represent the gospel to people who need to hear it. And it's a sobering thought. Uh, Look at the the lime green, uh, yellowish line that, that just goes up continually. That line represents the time that you spend alone. Some of y'all are like, that line ain't high enough for me. There's too many people in here. I'm uncomfortable, okay? Um, But that represents the hours that you spend alone. And what's sobering about this representation is that uh, for the average person, the time spent alone increases over your entire lifespan. That what that means is that statistically, all of us will spend more time alone in the years ahead of us than we do right now. And so if your mindset is, I've got to wait before I share the gospel, or I've got to know more theology before I share the gospel, or I've got to be more uh, mature in my faith before I begin to share the gospel with people, you are statistically wasting your time. God has placed you in a strategic place to be a light in a dark world. And as you begin to spend more and more time alone, my prayer is that you'll look back on your life and say, I made the most of my time for God's glory. So how do we do that? Well, part of how we do that, among things like marriage and parenting and other ways that are mentioned in Ephesians, we do that through godly work. And work, isn't, again, isn't just a paid job. It's responsibility. It's earning income. It's also raising children. It's also managing a home. It can also be caring for aging parents. It can also be ministry. Uh, Martin Luther, the guy that sparked the Protestant Reformation, spent a lot of his time studying and writing about vocation and work. 
It's super interesting. His conclusion in his life was that every Christian is in vocational ministry. Um, mom, you all probably heard mom talk about this. Mom, when she retired from Union Carbide, told people she was going into full-time ministry, uh, but she didn't realize her full-time ministry was changing diapers. <laughs> and um, so she became a full-time grandma. And she, I love that she refers to it as full-time ministry because she understands what Luther understood, right? That, that all of us are in vocational ministry, regardless of what our responsibilities may be. Um, and, and it's important that you realize this. And part of realizing this is understanding that your work is not your God, is not what you worship. Psalm 115.4 talks about idolatry. It says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. And we look at verses like this and we say, oh, well, that's archaic, that's ancient, that would never be us because we don't build statues and bow down and pray to them. But instead, we work with our hands, and we work with our minds, and we climb corporate ladders, and we build for ourselves idols that we name things like security, or luxury, or 401k, or pride, and we serve those idols relentlessly. We become slaves to those idols that we create. Your work and your responsibility is to be a conduit for God's glory. It is not to be your identity. It is not to be a black hole that sucks up all of your time. Uh, you, you have so much more important things than to idolize your job, yet in your job, you are called to, even in that time, honor God with it. So you have to have things in right perspective and priority. You see, uh, Luther understood this as well, that when we understand true worship, every task becomes a spiritual discipline. That crunching the accounting numbers is an act of worship. That changing a diaper becomes a spiritual thing. Luther put it this way, the Christian shoemaker does his duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes. Because God is interested in good craftsmanship. So this means everything that we do, even the mundane things of our lives, are meant to be for God's glory, to represent a good father to a world that doesn't know him. Do you pray before you go to work? Do you pray about work? Do you pray that you can be a light and a missionary at work? I think, I think I would go out on a limb and say most of us probably don't care enough about our work to view it as an act of worship, but the Bible's clear that everything ought to be done for God's glory. Therefore, we cannot become slaves to our jobs because, because the job is a slave to our God. The job is a platform for God's glory, not the other way around. Therefore, we have to see that where God has placed us is sovereign. Your career cannot be the God that you worship, but you acknowledge God has placed you in that place. He's given you the abilities to, like, sometimes it blows my mind. Like, I work for y'all. I work for the church. It blows my mind. Y'all pay me sometimes. Like, and, and you just insert your name into whatever you do if you get paid for what you do. Like someone sees you as important enough in what you do to give you money for doing that. Like can, that should lift your eyes to God that you're, you have an ability that people are willing to pay for. You didn't get that on your own. You didn't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. This is God's sovereignty placing giftings and circumstances in your life so that you can be where you are, so that you can be a light exactly where you are. So work is not God, but work is also not the devil either. 
Sometimes we go on the other end of the spectrum and we think, I hate work. I want to get as far away from my job as possible. Like we clock out, we're done, right? We don't even want to go. Um, I, I was a youth pastor at Hamlin Baptist while I was in seminary, and the pastor there, Jim Caldwell, is like the biggest, loudest redneck I know. And he's got this uh, view of work that it always had to be backbreaking labor. And, uh, and he, would, he would always say, son, I'm a worker. Like, I'd hear, like he'd go dig a ditch with someone in the church, and he's like, son, I'm a worker, right? If you ask me to dig a ditch with you, I'm calling the deacons. I'm saying, hey, somebody want to dig a ditch? Um, <laughs> but, but what Jim did teach me was, was laziness is sinful. And the Bible does condemn that. We can't be afraid of work. Uh, we have to be willing to work hard. Um, 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul, again, is writing here uh, to a church in Thessalonica, and, and he says, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is willing to work, not willing to work, let him not eat. These are sharp words. Paul says, if someone's in your church and they're not willing to work, they should not have meals. Paul took it seriously. He says, we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. And so he's saying their idleness and their laziness led to sinfulness. And listen to the admonition in verse 12. He says, such persons we command and encourage, this is an important phrase, in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Paul's motivation is important. It's not political or societal or economical. He says, we implore everyone to be good workers and to work hard, not because it's his political view. But he says everyone ought to work hard, but in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, because it brings glory to God. That it will change the way you go to work when you understand that you do your work, not for the, the pleasure of your boss or for your success, but for God's glory. This should eagerly bring you to a place of joy in your work. Now, I know that's supernatural, right, for some of us. That's hard to accomplish. There's a guy that I think is a great sermon illustration. If any of y'all know him, I'd love to figure out who he is. He used to work at, at the Milton McDonald's, a place that I hate to go to, but my kids love to go to. And so we would drive through Milton McDonald's, and kids would be all excited, and I'd be mad about it because I don't want to eat there. And we pull up to the, to the drive through window, and he's got this beautiful flowing mullet, okay? And I called him Mr. McMagical. Um, and... And he would be like, hey, how's it going? He was just always like the most chipper guy, right? Probably the hardest place to remain chipper and joyful. And he would, and he would just like always be so welcoming and give us our food and help us if something was wrong because it's usually wrong because there's seven of us in our family. And it, he was just always so, so joyful. Some of y'all know who he is. You, you, you've experienced him. And he would always end the interaction with, have a McMagical day. And... I swear, they found this guy working at Disney World and convinced him to come to the Milton McDonald's. Like, his work ethic is just next level. Well, so then, then I notice he's not working there anymore, and I'm incredibly sad because it's made McDonald's gloomy again. And, and the other day, uh, earlier this week, actually, so I know I'm preaching about work and work ethic, and I go through the Barbersville McDonald's, which I never go through, but circumstances led me there. And I pull up, and there's that beautiful mullet. I'm like, oh, yeah. 
And not only is it Mr. McMagical, but he's got something behind the, the window, and he's like, I got something for you. We had something that was made extra that I get to give away. And he was so happy about it, and it was a chocolate milkshake. Like, I don't even like chocolate milkshakes, but he gave me a chocolate milkshake for free. I felt like I won a game show. It was the best part of my week. It really was. <laughs> Mr. McMagical. And, and he, he ended it the same way. He said, have a McMagical day. And I was like, man, I will. And... Um, I just think, like, if, if, he can, if he can make going through McDonald's a joyful experience, like, what's stopping us from bringing glory to God in our workplaces, right? Um, and, and I thought of, like, you know, the seven drawers, you know, whistle while you work, and, and we, you know, we're, I don't want you to think that work is always happy, right? Even the seven drawers had grumpy. There are times where work is hard, and it's just difficult, and you're just not thrilled about it, but, but you can still bring joy even when there's not happiness. And, and, and as you do that... You eagerly enter into a place where you work like Jesus would work. And you work like Jesus is your boss, because ultimately he is. Verse 6 says, not by the way of eye service. So your motivation for doing this isn't so you can be praised. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. You should believe that, that you should exude joy in the way that you work, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. You do your job, ultimately, the Bible says, for Jesus. Not for your boss, not for yourself, for Jesus. How would, how would if, you go, if you're planning on going to work tomorrow, Mondays are Mondays, amen? Like, they're Mondays. Um, but if you would show up Monday at your job, and they were like, hey, you have a new supervisor, his name is Jesus of Nazareth, right? He comes in sandals and robes and everything, and and he's your boss. Some of you would, some of you are thinking right now, man, it'd be a lot better than what I currently got. But would it? Because that means Jesus sees your work ethic, right? What's Jesus think about? Let me let me just clue you in. He does anyways. Okay. What's he think about your work ethic? What's he think about your punctuality? What's he think about your customer service? What's he think about your attitude toward the people that you work with? You know, Christians ought to be the most desirable employees. Faithful, loyal, honest, hardworking. Because our responsibilities are God's <clears throat> design, and we carry them out for him. See, God has sovereignly orchestrated these things and these circumstances, so that they can be used for his glory. Luther continues writing this quote. He, he mentions works, and, and in this quote, he's not talking about works of kindness or charity or righteousness. He's talking about our jobs. He says, our works, our jobs, are God's masks behind which he remains hidden, although he does all things. I love the way he describes our jobs. Is that God is doing something special through your employment through your responsibility, through your home. God is behind the whole thing. The responsibilities in your life have been sovereignly placed upon you, not by your boss, not by your life decisions, not by your spouse or your kids or your parents, but by the Lord himself. And our work is a small response to the greatest work of all, which came from our master, Jesus. Jesus was a man of great labor. The Bible lends us to believe that he was most likely a carpenter. As soon as he came of age, he followed in his earthly father's trade of carpentry. 
He was a blue-collar redneck by all accounts. Jesus of Nazareth. People said about him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? They say that about Lincoln County too. And Jesus, who was a common laborer, continues after, after he leaves the field of blue-collar labor and begins to preach the gospel itinerantly, intensifies his labor, is persecuted in his labor, is homeless in his labor. Jesus said he had no place to lay his head, is poor in his labor, and ultimately dies in his labor to take our sins upon his shoulders. The heaviness of the cross was not just physical exertion, but it was spiritual, and that all of our sins are placed upon our boss, Jesus, in the greatest act of service ever. That he carries our sins to Calvary's cross and allows himself to be murdered so that we can receive eternal life. That's the gospel. How could we complain about our Mondays, right? Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I know sometimes Mondays don't feel like that, but if we theologically understand that we serve a big, sovereign God, that that means the burden of your job on Monday morning is Jesus' yoke that he's placed upon you. It's part of it. He doesn't say there's no yoke. He doesn't say there's no work in the kingdom. He says it's easy and light. I know sometimes our brains lie to us and trick us into saying that's not the case, but Jesus is telling us through his word that it is the case, that he has given us an opportunity to have workful rhythms that are filled with rest and filled with joy too. Thirdly, let's look at godly leadership. And before you tune out, if you feel like you're not in any kind of leadership, if if you're not a Christian, you need to become one today. But if you are a Christian, you're a leader, or at least you're supposed to be. Jesus gives the great commission to all Christians. He says, go unto all nations and make disciples of all peoples. And as he tells us to go and make disciples, I want you to remember, you cannot make a disciple if you don't lead someone. And so just being a Christian puts you in a position where you ought to be a leader. Whether at work you're the boss or the intern, you ought to be leading people around you that you find yourself around to a favorable view of Christianity. For those of you who work in intensely secular fields with people who are not Christians, chances are what they see at work is the only influence of Christianity, real Christianity they have other than media. That the reflection of what Christianity represents comes through a jacked-up sinner like you that they work with. What a mission from God. Amen? What a high calling from God. You are a leader. Verse 8 says, Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. And so what Paul does is he says, No matter the case, no matter, no matter if you're a slave or a master or somewhere in between or you're an intern or you're a boss or a supervisor, whatever it may be, he says, whatever the case, you are to do good to everyone else. You're to represent well the kingdom of God. Karma is a pagan belief that's not biblical. This is probably the closest to karma we get in the Bible. And the, what is biblical is good returns. What karma says is bad also returns. We don't get the bad that we sow. Praise God. Amen. God gives us grace. 
But the Bible does say that the good that we sow returns back to us in the blessing of God. So whether you're an employee or a stay-at-home mom or retired, you do good in your responsibility, knowing that you're rendering service to God and glory to Him, and that blessings await us and come back to us for our hard work and God's glory. We worship in the work that we do, and we also worship with the blessing that we receive from that work. So that means when we get a paycheck, that's a tool to worship God. When we have spheres of influence because of the hard work we've put in and places of of work and influence, we use that platform for the glory of God. We worship in the work, but we also worship with the blessing that comes from the work. This is why we give financially, why it's important for us in an act of worship to give. Like We don't talk about that a whole lot at our church. we got a little black box in the back of the room that you can give money to, and we don't pass a plate around here. And Some people come in and they're like, well, y'all never talk about money. Listen, I don't want you to think we're after your money, but if you're not giving money that you're making by abilities and a job that God's blessed you with to have income, and you're not giving any of that to the service and ministry of the church, then you are not worshiping fully. You're just not. So Christians lead the way. We lead in these areas. We should lead in generosity. How in the world have Christians become known for being notoriously bad tippers when we go out to eat? Start tipping at least 20%. Can we agree to that? If you're going to pray before your meal, don't tip less than 20%. Let's just say that. You're representing the kingdom, all right? If you're not praying before your meal, we got other stuff to talk about. You can tip a little less. But if you're going to pray and talk to Jesus before you eat, tip good, okay? We have become known as stingy people. When the Bible has called us to be known to represent a very generous God, a very loving God, a very benevolent God, and how we work and act in the world has everything to do with that. Lastly, maybe God has placed you in a position to manage others in your work. Maybe you're a boss. Maybe you're an owner of a company. Maybe you're a supervisor of some sort. Verse 9, I think, although it's written to masters, slave owners, I think it has application to how we treat people that we are supervising or leading. It says, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening. That means that we don't lead with a heavy hand. We don't lead out of animosity and anger and hate. We lead in a way that is Christ-centered. Stop your threatening. Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, there is no partiality with them. And so the Bible tells us that that all of us are equal in God's sight, that there is no one above the other. There may be a corporate ladder that exists in the world, but not in the church. None of us are more important than one another. All of us bring importance to the one true God. Jesus explains this in Matthew 20. Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. He says, church, you will not act like the way that the world acts. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. All of us in Christ have the same master. There's no one who is more important or less important than the other. But our master, praise God, is also a servant. Amen? That the one that we serve has served us by saving us. Jesus laid everything down to be a servant leader. And so if we're going to lead others to the cross, we also have to become servants. I think a great illustration of this, and I'll close with this thought, this story, is a couple of pastors in the 18th century. Um, Young, 
Dutch-German pastors named Johann Dober and David Nitschmann. I'm sure that's a Lincoln County pronunciation of their German names. But they come up through seminary training and theological training, and they feel called by God um, to reach the African slave population. Get it, man. Sorry, that's my ADD. They feel called by God to reach the African slave population um, in the West Indies, or what's what's now known as the U.S. Virgin Islands. And and they they go after this mission. They decide they're going to make this their life's calling. Um, They're German men. They're they're white, and they're, they're, they're seeking to go and preach the gospel. What they seek to do is raise money from the church, their financial support that they need to sail across the ocean, land, preach the gospel, plant churches. They go and apply to the the Danish West Indian Company to get access to these islands, and they're denied access. They're denied even like like passage on a ship to go there because they're they're going there for um, agricultural purposes and development purposes, and they're not allowing missionaries to go. And instead of just accepting, well, we tried, what they instead do is say, we still want to go, but we'll go as slaves. We'll just become slaves. If that's the only way for us to get to these islands, to reach the slaves that are working there that need to hear the gospel of Jesus, we will just become slaves with them. And the company says, that's crazy. You're white. You can't be a slave. And they said, well, that's exactly what we want to be. They sell themselves into slavery. Others join them, inspired by their cause. And they board the ship, and it's said that they cry out as the ship is leaving, as they're among the slaves on the ship, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. You see, these young men and others like them understood that their work had a greater purpose, that if most of the hours for the rest of their days were spent working in the hot sun and humidity in fields, that those hours of backbreaking labor would be worth it for the less numerical hours of preaching the gospel and having an opportunity to do that. And we think God can't work outside of our churchy time. History tells us that Protestant churches were planted on these islands. Historical records show 13,000 converts within the next about two decades on these islands. And I think it's so interesting who, who was the, the pastor that ordained these men is a guy named Count Nicholas Zinzendorf. Some of you guys may have heard us quote him before. He's got a really famous quote that the pastors have used multiple times. This quote says, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Man, they heard that and they took it seriously. And I think sometimes in our American wheel of productivity, we just forget the ultimate purpose of stuff. We forget and that there's a, there's a greater purpose behind every little mundane thing that we do. And I want to call you to just search your life today. Maybe, maybe God's calling you to change your work. Maybe you feel like God's not using you where you work. I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, like, don't show up tomorrow, but maybe. The Lord can do some, some wild things, but with counsel and wisdom... Maybe the Lord's leading you into something. Maybe the Lord is leading you into something as radical as leaving this country and dedicating your life to reaching those furthest from the gospel. 
Maybe the Lord's leading you to start a church. I, I don't know what the, the Spirit may do among us, but I, I think we are, we are fools if we don't open up our hands to God and say, wherever you want us, that's where we want to be. Wherever we find ourselves today and tomorrow, may we work to God's glory, and may He work His purpose in and through us. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.